Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'm J.R. Lowry, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Trevor Rozier-Bird, who I work with at State Street. Trevor is the founder and CEO of Staffwell Capital, a fintech startup that seeks to eliminate the racial wealth gap by addressing Black underinvestment in America. Prior to founding Stackwell, he served as head of strategy and business development for State Street Alpha, which is State Street Bank and Trust's captive fintech business. He held senior sales, strategy, corporate development, and legal positions during his overall tenure with State Street. Prior to joining State Street, he was a senior associate at Wilmer Hale Law Firm, where his practice focused on domestic and international corporate transactions, including M&A, venture capital financings, public and private capital markets and transactions. Trevor represented companies and entrepreneurs in connection with a broad range of startup company matters. Prior to joining Wilmer Hale, he was at Sidley Austin, another law firm where he represented various financial institutions in connection with a broad range of public and private capital markets transactions. While getting his law degree, he spent time with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Division of Enforcement, where he participated in investigations of possible violations of federal securities law. He's a member of the Minority Depository Institution Innovation Committee, which is a partnership bringing together experts in financial services, regulation, and fintech to support Black banks and their customers. He received his law degree from Boston University School of Law and his Bachelor of Arts from Boston College. He's a member of the BU School of Law Executive Committee and the Boston College Board of Regents. He serves on the board of directors of the Edward Brooke Charter Schools in Boston. He lives in the Boston area with his wife and three small children. Wow, Trevor, that's a mouthful, my friend. (laughs) Yes, it is. Welcome. Good to have Thank you. Thank you, Jair. Good, good to be with you. Appreciate yeah. you having me on. Yeah, sure thing. So looking forward to catching up in the middle of, of your startup experience at the moment. So we'll certainly get to that. But before we do, you know, you grew up in New Jersey, if I remember right. What was your first job as a kid? How old were you then? So my first job as a kid, I was probably 13 or 14 years old. And it was actually working in the law office of my grandmother. Mm. So my grandmother was an attorney. She had a small practice, her and her law partner in the town that I grew up in. And that's where I spent most of my summers through high school and in college. I know you went to BC and you majored in political science and theology. Did you go to BC knowing that you wanted to be a lawyer? I didn't go to BC knowing that I wanted to be a lawyer. I had a bit of an inclination that I might want to do that. But, you know, I went to BC largely because of the opportunity to go to a really good school and also to, you know, participate athletically. And I was, you know, like a lot of 18-year-old kids just trying to figure it out as I went. So I didn't have a clear direction, but I was excited about that opportunity for sure. Yeah, great. What'd you do during your summers? So during my summers at at BC, I was at my grandmother's law office. We were doing mostly, it was just like a very small practice, but really focused on like 
real estate transactions and just general legal issues that just your normal everyday person in a small town might run into. So like wills, trusts, estates, that type of stuff. And it was a really, really rewarding experience for me because I saw firsthand like the impact that you could have on people and their lives. And that like in the summers as I was in college and as I progressed, you know, further and further along, that's when I started to know that maybe becoming a lawyer was something that I wanted to do. I just, you know, through the way that I saw her and her her law partner interact with their clients, I just felt like, you know, if practiced the right way, it was a really honorable profession and something that I'd be proud of. And so start to think pretty seriously about taking that path. Yeah. I mean, certainly, as you say, a lawyer in a town, you know, helping people in the community with their legal needs, it's uh, pretty easy to see the, the connection and the value that people get out of it. So I'm sure you've carried that through with you in your time since. Absolutely. So she so went to law school. I, kn- I know a lot of people when they go to law school, get in and say, you know, wow, this really wasn't what I expect. How is it for you? Did it Did anything surprise you or was it pretty much as you expected? Yeah. So it was what I expected. And I have an older brother, one of four kids, but I'm I'm the second. And my older brother actually went to law school just before I did. So he was in law school as I was finishing up at BC. He also went to BU for law school. Fun fact, our younger brother is currently at BU Law School right now as a tutor. But I had the perspective of my brother having gone through the process just, you know, a year or two before I went. I also obviously had my grandmother and understanding like what her process was like. But for me, when I graduated from BC, I actually had the opportunity to work at Sidley Austin in New York as a paralegal. And so, you know, I knew, like I said before, I had this experience of working in my grandmother's law office and I wanted to know for sure if that was really what I wanted to do. And so I figured, why don't I go to, you know, a major international law firm? get that experience, which is entirely different, right? And understand if this is a place for me. And I got there, I started working in the investment management group. So we were supporting clients that were starting new investment management products. So a lot of like private equity, hedge fund, mutual fund and ETF managers and helping them bring new products to market. And I absolutely loved it. Like everything, you know, that I was doing, it was exciting. It was fast paced. It was competitive. There were hard deadlines. You had to get things right. And, you know, being who I was in my, you know, athletic background, it just was like the perfect fit for me. And it was around the same time that I started to like, develop an understanding of the markets um, and start to invest myself personally. And the deals that I was working on were in the Wall Street Journal. And it was just kind of like, this is where I was meant to be. And so going back to law school, I knew pretty definitively that, you know, I wanted to practice in the law and I wanted to be a deal lawyer. And, you know, that's what I set my sights on once I got back to school. Yeah. So you had a pretty, as a paralegal then in that summer you know, or time period in between undergrad at BC and grad law school at BU, you had a pretty substantive experience. It sounds like when you were working at Sidley Austin, that was, that was pretty formative in the end. I did. I did. It was really interesting. So I actually spent two years there uh, in between college and law school. And, you know, I got to the point where I became like a trusted member of the team. And, you know, I wasn't a lawyer, obviously, but like, People continue to just give me more and more opportunity, more and more exposure to the work that I was ultimately doing. And then, you know, at some point, probably halfway through 
my time there, I decided that I was going to apply for law school. And so they obviously like fully supported that. A lot of people that were, you know, similarly situated to me were, you know, using the paralegal position as the stopgap between college and law school. And so knowing that that was the path that I was going on, they tried to give me more and more exposure to help, you know, better prepare me for what was to lie ahead. Yeah, that's really good. And did they help cover costs of law school, kind of like the consulting firms and the banks do for people who go off to business school? I wish they did. They did not. Okay. (laughs) It's all good. All good. Yeah. Your experience interning for the SEC, that must have been really unique being in the enforcement division of the securities regulator in the United States. What was that like? It was actually an unbelievable experience. So I was in law school at the height of the financial crisis. So I finished my first year and like everything that we do in law school, like you start recruiting in between your first and second year. And that was the summer of like, oh, we right when everything happened with Lehman Brothers and so on and so forth. So it was a super challenging time to be you know, a graduate student in school looking for a job. But, you know, the following fall, I got the opportunity to be at the SEC for a few months. And, you know, there was just so much going on, you know, in terms of them trying to deal with the fallout of the financial crisis. And, you know, I really got exposure to see how they thought about, you know, regulation as it stood at the time and what they needed to do on a go forward basis to address some of the challenges that arose and contributed to the financial crisis. But then, you know, I also got the opportunity to work on insider trading cases and, and understand how the SEC goes about building up, you know, those fact bases around, you know, adjudicating and bringing to conclusion some of the malfeasance or issues that they see in the market. So it was just really eye opening. It affirmed my belief in the markets, mm-hmm. frankly, as like, you know, a sound, like well-functioning place that had, you know, good regulation that was about protecting individual investors. You know, a lot of times there's a lot of contrary perspectives out there, but I fully believe in the markets as an institution and the regulations that are there and their utility for, you know, people regardless of where they're at in their lives. Yeah. I hadn't connected that the time you were there was during the financial crisis. That Talk about a unique experience, unique time to be in a regulatory environment, you know, given everything that was going on in the world at that time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was super exciting. I was very fortunate to get that opportunity. So then you went back to Sidley Austin, continued to do deal related work. You know, was being a lawyer as opposed to a paralegal, you know, a positive step? What did you sort of like and not like about being a rising associate in a law firm? So it was, you know, kind of back to the point that I made before, as I was coming out of Sibley, they, I think, created a lot of interesting opportunities for me to see what it would, you know, frankly, look and feel like to actually be practicing in that capacity. And so the transition back in wasn't that hard. I actually went back to the practice group that I was in before law school. So I had personal relationships with everyone. I knew many of the clients that we had. And so I felt like I had a significant leg up and just understanding kind of like the flow of how things worked in an environment like that. And if you've never worked on deals before or, you know, had those types of opportunities, there's definitely a bit of an adjustment to it. And so I felt like I was able to, to hit the ground running and function at a level that was probably you know, ahead of where I technically was from like a class year and associate ranking perspective, which, you know, just further increased the opportunities that I got while I was there. Yeah. So I know you spent time there and then at Wilmer Hale, and then you, you moved to an in-house counsel role, which a lot of people in 
law firms do at some point. Was that a lifestyle choice for you as it is for a lot of lawyers or did something different motivate you to make that shift? Yeah. So it actually was not a lifestyle choice. So for me, and I've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I always knew that I wanted to be a deal lawyer. And when I got to law school, like I had this perspective around the markets and things like that. And it was super interesting. And I felt like maybe that was probably the space that I wanted to be. But, you know, at some point during law school, I started to really understand and study uh, M&A and understand like the deal making process in that context. So coming out of law school, I actually wanted to be an M&A attorney. But again, given the context of the markets, like, that just was not happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Sidley, you know, given the relationships and opportunities that I had there. But ultimately, like my decision to come back to Boston and specifically work at Wilmer Hale was about starting to make good on that transition towards truly being like a deal lawyer in the context of doing M&A and corporate transactions in that sort of vein. And You know, one of the best things that has happened to me in my career, which I'm sure we will touch on throughout this conversation is like, I've always had really good mentors that have been able to help me understand like, okay, if I'm sitting here today and I want to be in X position five or 10 years from now, like these are the steps that I have to take, or these are the people that I need to talk to to understand how they got from point A to point B. And, you know, a couple of my mentors who happened to be partners at Wilmer at the time, they knew that I had like these aspirations to move closer and closer to the business decision making process and actually like be in the room when the deals were being made, right? Not just documenting it after the process. And the only way that I was going to make that transition was if I went in house and like shed the label of just being like a law, big law firm lawyer, right? Because right. there's perceptions that are associated with that that would have been limiting in terms of my ability to to get where I was trying to go. And so to me, the decision to go to State Street was the first step in the path towards getting myself closer and closer to the business decision-making process and into a, a place where, you know, I ultimately would have the opportunity to, you know, have the types of exposures that I wanted to have. Why State Street? I mean, obviously, you know, we both work there, but it's a relatively unknown institution to most people, despite the fact that it plays a significant role in the world's financial market. So how did you decide to come to State Street? Yeah, so it actually goes back to those same two partners at, at Wilmer that, you know, they happened to be teachers of mine when I was at law school, then mentors and advisors, then they brought to Wilmer. As you know, when I came to State Street, the chief legal officer at the time was an an ex-Wilmer partner. And he was one of the people that they connected me with early on when I moved back to Boston to like help develop uh, mentorship relationships and just an understanding of what might be out there or what would be possible for me. And he is absolutely somebody that I would characterize as like straddling that line between like strategic corporate advisor and lawyer, right? And so there was an opportunity to to go over to State Street and join the legal department. You know, over the course of the time that I was at Wilmer, I had developed, you know, really strong relationships with a number of different people in the State Street legal department. And I understood that, you know, having a support system, having advocates in a place where you're working is like one of the most important and determinative factors in your ability to have success and, Mm. you know, get access to opportunities. And so I just felt like 
it was the right first step for me. I felt like there were the right people around me to help me navigate that transition. And, you know, given the nature of the work that, you know, State Street is involved in, it seemed to fit given my background. Yeah. And then you made admittedly what's a bit of a career shift, right? Within the company, Mm -hmm. you shifted Mm -hmm. out of the law function at State Street, the legal function into a role in the data and analytics business at State Street had at the time called Global Exchange. What what was that transition like, you know, moving away from practicing law and into, you know, more of a business role? I'll say it was certainly unexpected. So, and I know that's probably somewhat surprising given everything that I've said about what I was aspiring towards in, in my mm. legal career. But, you know, for me, I was always under the assumption that, okay, I'll go to State Street and I'll you know, get some experience. I'll, you know, be on this path as a corporate in-house lawyer. And maybe at some point, you know, 10 to 15 years down the line, I'll become a general counsel. And then once I become a general counsel, I'll be able to like earn the right to make that transition over to the business side. Yeah. And obviously that's not how it transpired. Right. I, I think what happened for me was, you know, the way in which I always helped myself out and practiced as a lawyer was like very much aware of just like business priorities and objectives and and trying to be like thoughtful and accommodating of those issues, trying to be not necessarily risk averse as many law for uh, lawyers are sort of pigeonholed, but understanding of the core objectives and like, how do you use the law, your business judgment, your understanding of people and their motivations and your negotiation skills to help people achieve the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. And so that's what I think enabled me to make that transition. I think that's what the person that created the opportunity for me saw in me. Mm-hmm. And so as I made that transition out of the law and, and into the business world, I relied on those things that made me a successful like business advisor as I made that transition. And one of the best things that I think that I did along the way was I would characterize myself as someone that is self-aware, right? Like I knew that there was going to be a huge learning curve around certain issues. And so what I did was I surrounded myself with people that, you know, would be willing to invest in me personally and professionally. And so I could leverage and learn from some of the experiences they had along the way. I can emphasize the strengths that I had and I could gravitate towards areas where I could have impact so that like over time and fairly quickly, like, I could compete on par with people that were sort of like my same age and same level on the business side, just as well as I could on the legal side. What skills were you focused on developing that? And how did you go about that to supplement your, you know, everything you brought with you from practicing law? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, what I immediately started working on was just like core strategy type work, right? So Mm -hmm. understanding just the Many of the things that you probably learned at McKinsey as a consultant, right? It's just like yeah. understanding a market, how to do landscaping type work, understanding just like, you know, how you could look at competitors and understanding where the market's going, financial modeling, things like that, right? So those are obviously things that we don't learn in law school. You certainly don't need to focus on as a lawyer, but those are super critical given the things that I was trying to do as a lawyer. And I mean, as a business person, once I moved over, um, and so just understanding like that whole process plus, you know, having a greater familiarity with like the financial decision making process associated with some of the things that we were doing, financial planning, all that type of stuff, just core fundamental things that you need to know and understand on the business side. It wasn't so much that like I didn't understand the concepts. It was just like 
familiarity with the practice yeah. and the mechanics of going through, you know, just sort of like annual planning cycles and things like that, understanding how to like organize teams and, ru- and run projects. So those were the things that I focused on. And I identified people that whether they were above me, below me, at my same level, like they had those experiences all day long, right? And so I was able to pick their brain and understand how they navigated certain situations. And then, you know, similarly, I've always held myself out as, you know, someone that is a team player and is willing to roll up their sleeves and do whatever is required to achieve our objectives and our outcomes. And I feel like one of the biggest, like, lessons or takeaways that I would, you know, advocate that people try to remember coming out of this conversation is just like, you know, being a team player, working hard, setting a standard for yourself and and consistently meeting that standard is going to go such a long way in terms of getting people to respect the work that you do and give you opportunities. And so those are the things that I focus on. And, you know, obviously it helped uh, in terms of my progression models at State Street. Yeah. And, you know, I think it certainly helped Roland you getting involved in State Street's acquisition of Charles River, which brought it into the fintech space that I referenced in the beginning. You know, that was an opportunity a lot of people at State Street certainly would have loved to be involved in. You know, you had the prior M&A experience. What was it like to be doing an acquisition from the perspective of the acquirer that, you know, relative to doing it as, as a lawyer, supporting one of the parties involved? What was similar? What was different for you? It was a lot more similar than I think you probably would anticipate. And you mm-hmm. just asked the question about my transition from law to business. And like, as soon as we got down the path of working on the acquisition, like that's when I felt at home on the business yeah. side. Like yeah. it finally started to click for me because it was like, I remember this feel, right? Like the process of executing and driving a deal to, to conclusion, like, it's very similar regardless of where you sit at process, right? And so that was an opportunity for me to really drive down on my strengths and excel in ways that, you know, maybe other people were not able because they just didn't have those experiences, right? Like State Street is not a serial acquirer like some other companies. And so, you know, having had that experience was certainly, you know, super helpful for me. And so what I focused on was just like, my understanding of how to manage the deal process and how to manage deal teams and how to like make sure that you could execute against the various tasks that are important along the way. And, you know, for me, I understood not only the business objectives that we were pursuing at the time, but I understood like the ramifications from a legal perspective and from mm. a term perspective as well. Right. And so I was able to, to focus on those things and add value in those areas. But also as a result of that, and as, as a result of the way that I was just like managing that process, people noticed that. And I incrementally got to take bigger and bigger pieces of the transaction as we progressed along. Right. So for me, like to just be really specific about it, I started off as part of like a team of people that were focused on some core diligence items. Right. And like that's what you do all day long as a corporate deal lawyer working on a transaction. So it was just like completely familiar to me. And based on the work product that I was able to produce there, it was like, oh, actually Trevor understands this. So why don't we give him more and more opportunities to do these other things? So yeah, it was a really exciting experience to be able to, like I said at the outset, right? Like I wanted to be in the room when these decisions were happening and, and this process was taking shape. And so it was really cool to get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And, and you had this vision ultimately of being a general counsel and then you took a 
complete left or right turn, take your pick, and decided to, you know, to become an entrepreneur. So when did that idea come up? I know you, you and your wife had your third child last year and you came back from paternity leave and communicated that you were ready to do something different. Was it something that that really came to bear during that time period of paternity leave or had you been thinking about that idea longer than that? So for me, I actually so Stackwell is the manifestation of an idea that I've been thinking about for like 10 years. And I have always been like one of these people, like I always carried around like a notebook and just like sketched ideas in that book. And whether it was about like, oh, this would be like an interesting business idea, or this would be an interesting product idea. Never really thought much about it, but it is literally something that I was thinking about when I was, Mm. you know, junior associate at Sibley. For me, it just kind of like, sat on the shelf or in the back of my mind for a long time. But I got to this point in my career where I decided that I was like ready to take the next step in my leadership journey. I felt like I had developed a skill set and an ability to connect with people, to truly be a leader, to be someone that could set a strategy and drive execution. And frankly, to like be someone that could build a culture and a company that I myself would be proud of, the people that were working with me would be proud of, and like all of the investors and, and people, you know, around the company would, would value and respect as well. And so I started to think about like what that might look like. And, you know, for me, the other driving factor was just like, you know, who I am personally. Right. Yeah. So it's never been lost on me that I was always one of the only like African Americans in the room is certainly one of the only black males in the room. Right. And so for me, what has always come with that is just this strong sense of desire and frankly, a sense of obligation to give back mm-hmm. and to create access to opportunities for folks that look like me. And so when I, I had these like two competing notions in my head and, you know, every time I seemingly thought about that, it just kept bringing me back to the racial wealth gap. And yeah. I just felt like I was sitting on a body, a body of knowledge and experience that could actually help. And I knew just from my own personal lived experiences why so many, you know, black Americans are underinvested in the market. And I felt like there was a really unique opportunity to, to take a fintech business model and leverage technology to drive scale and reach more people and give them access to better information and give them access to better products to help to, you know, really secure their financial futures in ways that would allow them to, you know, achieve goals and objectives more pervasively in their lives. So in a lot of unexpected ways is like something that has always been there for me. And then, you know, I've always had an interest in the fintech space and, you know, sitting in this room, at some point last year, I started thinking about, you know, ideas relative to what was transpiring in the market, right? And so then it percolated into a little bit of like a personal strategy exercise for me. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, the fintech digital banking or investment business model looks like this in the US. And it looks like why over in Europe and you know, there's these other variations in, in Latin America. And, you know, it was like this interesting intersection of business, legal and investments, because like the regulatory landscape outside of this country for these types of businesses, I would argue is far advanced to, to what it is here in the US. And so I just started to see things that made a lot of sense to me. And the more and more that I thought about it, I felt like it was an opportunity that 
I owed it to myself to take. And I felt like if I didn't try to go off and do it, that, you know, it was something that I was certainly going to regret for a long time. Yeah. So you made the jump. What was the shock like for you moving from a corporate role with all of the things that come with being in a big company to being the CEO of a startup right at the outset? Yeah, it was a huge shock to the system. I'm not going to lie about that. So I'm a solo founder and, you know, there's good things about that. There's bad things about that. But for me, after I made the decision to leave and I started to think about, okay, I'm going to really push forward with this and started to socialize it with people, started to think about raising money. Like there's a lot of ups and downs in that process, right? Like some people see your idea, other people don't, right? And some people are willing to invest, other people are not, right? And so there's this like very personal attachment that you have to starting a company and your ideas associated with starting that company. And sometimes like the feedback can be hard to take, right? Yeah. Um, but I think for me, that's been one of the most rewarding pieces of the process is just like continuing to persist along the path, regardless of, you know, how any one individual day goes or how any one individual conversation goes. Right. And so there have been so many times throughout this process where it was like, there's this really important strategic question that I don't know how to answer. And if I don't know how to answer this question, like we can't move forward. Right. Mm. But then two, three days down the line, you figure it out. You get connected to the right person. You're able to answer that question. Right. And so I would say probably one of the biggest challenges is just like the isolation that I felt yeah. early on yeah. in the process. And, and, you know, frankly, I still feel right. Like the trains don't keep moving if I take a day off. Right. right. So that is one thing that I miss from being in a, in a larger organization. But, you know, in many ways, this has been the most rewarding thing or one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done in my life. It is so hard. There are so many challenges and ups and downs along the way, but I am somewhat unexpected in surprising ways. Like it has allowed me to grow into the parent that I always thought and wanted to be. Right. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, we've got three kids. Our oldest child will be seven in about a month. We have a four and a half year old and then a soon to be one year old. And the two older kids understand what I'm doing. Right. Like they come home from school and you used to see this when we work together. And like the first thing they do is they run into this office and they're like wanting to know what's going on. And my son, every day, he's just like, did Stackwell make it? Right. Like he understands how tenuous mm-hmm. it is to like start a company and, and the proposition of what it is that I'm trying to do. But along the way, I was able to start to have conversations with the two of them about trying to do something bigger than yourself. Right. And not being afraid to chase your dreams. And we can have conversations about entrepreneurship. We can have conversations about investing. Like they're seven and four years old. I didn't know any of these things, even when I graduated college. Right. And so, you know, through this process, I, I feel like I've given my children a level of freedom that like I never had myself, right? Like the freedom to dream and to understand that anything that you want to do is possible. If you're willing to put yourself out there and just, you know, give it a try. So it is so like multifaceted and layered, but it has absolutely been just an unbelievable ride. Yeah, that's awesome. So to so describe the company as it exists today, I know you're, you know, taking, I'll take, you know, you've kind of in beta testing mode, I think, right? And mm-hmm. so, so where are you today in terms of, you know, from a people perspective and in terms of the the readiness of the app? Yeah, so where we're at today, so 
I guess, Stackwell is a digital investment platform that's focused on getting more people in the Black community into the markets, right? And so our product is based on like three core pillars. We're giving people access to the market through model investment portfolios, taking a broad-based index approach to getting into the markets. We're pairing that with access to financial literacy and investment education that's delivered in culturally competent ways. So people don't feel othered by the process. They feel Mm -hmm. more encouraged and empowered by the information so that they can do the things that, frankly, many of them have not done before. And then finally, we're pairing all of that with our use of behavioral psychology to help nudge and promote the effective behaviors that are required to, frankly, persist along a path and ultimately accumulate wealth over time. And so... The product, as you mentioned, is in beta right now. Super excited about that process of getting there. And we will go through a couple of cycles here over the next several weeks and months to test it out, make sure that, you know, we're not missing anything along the way, getting a lot of good feedback from some potential users in our target demo, all with the view towards releasing it, you know, certainly in the first half of this year. Uh, From a team and people perspective. So I, you know, over the last several months have added a number of team members. So right now we're a core team of about six or seven. We actually have an offer out to someone right now, which we're super excited about. But that's been one of the most exciting parts of this process is, you know, getting other people that buy into the vision and the mission and frankly, believe in me as a leader to help us like go off and execute on what it is that we're trying to do. So I'm super excited about where we're at. We're making We're in the midst of making this transition from just being a really interesting and good idea into being like a full operating company and, you know, all the things that are required and necessary to go along with that. But super encouraged about where we're at and the prospects and and opportunities that are in front of us. I certainly see on social media, you're getting some great media. What's that been like for you? It's been interesting. I would characterize myself as like not necessarily the most public of people, but it's been really cool. And the reason why it's been cool is has like absolutely nothing to do with me and has everything to do with one of the core objectives of Stackwell. And so I think part of what we need to do and part of what will make this company successful is, you know, us being a catalyst to help start normalize conversations around Black wealth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest things that you hear all the time is like, oh, well, we never talked about these things at our dinner table or like I didn't have a parent or an uncle or a friend that could say like, oh, you should do this with your money. Right. And so part of what I see in my going out and doing some of these engagements and, and the coverage that we've gotten is starting to like normalize that process. Right. And, and if you read like a lot of the articles and interviews that I do, I have made a conscious decision to be like extremely transparent about the process that I personally am going through and my experiences and my understanding of just the challenges that are faced by many people in this community. I talked obviously before about like the ups and downs associated with being an entrepreneur. And the reality is like the angst and anxiety that I have felt as a solo founder in particular and someone that is just trying to get a startup idea off off the ground and into like a meaningful company is not dissimilar to what I think many Black Americans feel relative to the investment process and like yeah. the decisions of whether or not they should invest. And so I think it is extremely important that people know that we're going through it together. Right. So like They don't have to go it alone. We're here to support them in the process. And this is something that we are all going to collectively achieve together. Yeah. Uh, And so that's why, unlike 
you know, many other uh, fintech apps or finance companies. Like we are so intently focused on meeting people where they are, yeah. helping to cultivate and uplift and empower them to believe that, you know, frankly, this is a space where I belong, right? And I'm not doing this by myself, right? I think that is going to be part of the key unlock to helping to address this problem. Yeah, I know most founders, you know, would describe their business as their baby. But I have to imagine that focusing on something that's got such a strong social purpose gives you an extra lift, you know, even on those particularly lonely days as a solo founder. It does. It it really does. Like, you know, this is not about me at all. I tell my team all the time. And, you know, when I go out and have conversations with people about it, like, I feel like a lot of times founders like to project and venture investors like to project that, like, People just made every right decision along the way. And this company went from idea to unicorn status, right? Like, it's just not like, right? Yeah. And so I am not going to be one of those people that is out here, like, championing how much money we have raised and, you know, all of these cool things that we have done along the way. Like, what we are focused on is the work and actually helping people to achieve the outcomes that they want to have in their lives. I just, like, fundamentally believe that we're doing the right thing, that we are creating the right pathway. And if we can be successful in this first stage of our life cycle, like Mm. the possibilities are endless for us as a company and for the people that we're trying to serve within the community. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked a lot about the relationships that you've built over the years and the, the mentors that you've had. How are you tapping into your network of relationships and mentors now as a founder in the early stages of getting a business going? Yeah, I mean, none of this is possible without a network, right? And so like, my idea would have died on the vine if I didn't have people that said, you know what, that's interesting. Why don't you go talk to this person and that person? They may be able to help you with like some portion of it. And so really, more than anything, what this process has been is just like, continue to build on top of already existing network that I had and just reaching, frankly, like points of influence and connection with people that I would have never thought that like I would be able to to get to along the way. Yeah. It's just been really cool to see people be so giving of their time and in some cases their resources to help further the objective of what it is that we're trying to do. And you know, I think I couldn't have asked more from many of my mentors and advisors along the way. And frankly, at like all inflection points in my career, yeah. like people have come out, you know, from everywhere, whether it's like people that we worked with back at State Street that have been involved and engaged and have helped make really positive and influential connections. It's been people that I worked with in a legal capacity. It's been, you know, people that I knew from high school or college, like teammates, friends, their parents, their friends. Like it's just been everywhere. And so Yes, I'm a solo founder, but I'm absolutely not doing this alone. There is just a whole community of people sitting behind me that are supporting and encouraging and uplifting me along the way and creating access to opportunities for me to make this all possible. Yeah. The people you've brought in, the you know, six or seven that you mentioned a few minutes ago, now you're the leader, right? You're mm-hmm. running this institution that you're this enterprise that you're building. What kind of leader do you want to be for them? That's a great question. So I have always been intently focused on individuals as opposed to the company itself. Mm -hmm. And I know that probably sounds crazy as, you know, a founder and a major 
a shareholder in this company that depends on other people to make it successful. But I fundamentally believe that if you treat people fairly, if you understand their motivations and their objectives and help them develop the skill sets that are required to do the things that they ultimately want to do in their careers, then they will be extremely loyal, right? And loyalty doesn't necessarily mean like, I'm going to stay at this company with you for the duration, but it means that like, I believe in your mission. I am going to continue to champion and work extremely hard for you and with you and create access to opportunities for you through my broader network and recommend people to you know, work with you over time, right? And so I believe that it is my responsibility to create an environment in which people can realize their full potential. It is also my responsibility to each one of them because they've taken a huge leap of faith, you know, in terms of their careers on me to continue to put myself out there, be in the uncomfortable situations, all towards like creating the opportunities and getting the access to capital that we're going to need to continue to grow and scale this business, right? Like that's my commitment to them. It's like, I will continue to do whatever it takes to give you access to what it is that we need to make good on the objectives that we collectively have. And I do so with respect. I do so with compassion for, you know, people's lived experiences you know, frankly, I just try to be the type of leader that, you know, I always wanted to work for along the way. And so, you know, sometimes it gets lost in, you know, in the day to day. Yeah. Right. But like treating people the right way goes a long way, right? Into creating a company and a culture that people feel invested in. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. It's just like make people feel good about what it is that we're doing, make them feel engaged and and like they are significantly contributing to the process, but then also letting them know from day one that like, if there's something else that they want to do, or, you know, if at some point this is no longer the fit for them, like I totally support that, Mm. right? Like there's a person on the team right now that I was having a conversation with the other day. And I told her, I was just like, I don't want you working here like two or three years from now, I want you to go off and have the exact same experience that I'm having right now, because like, I feel like she has that potential. Yeah. Right. Like I want her to experience this for herself. So, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Just listening to you talk. I mean, you sound like someone who is having it all come together in a fantastic way, which is just awesome. You know, most people only dream of that. So that's really great. Appreciate that. Any final thoughts to share before we run out of time here? Yeah, I would just say, you know, be intentional about the things that you do. I think one of the best things that I have done in my career is I have never been necessarily tied to any one thing that I did. I always had this vision in my head of, you know, what I might want to do in the future. And so my career came about, became about skill acquisition and less about the roles that I had. And so, you know, I constantly found myself saying like, Oh, this person is a really great leader in like, this specific area. Let me adopt that mannerism or that skill set and add it to my toolbox. Or I see people doing this like really interesting thing over here. And I realize every single one of them has like this set of experiences. So maybe I should go and try to replicate some of those experiences so that I can add that to my toolbox. Right. And so I guess as a result of approaching my career in that way, it has never felt like a job to me. Like my career was always about something like bigger. It was like a larger like manifestation of like who it was that I wanted to be as a person. Right. Yeah. And so it made it easier to go through the various ups and downs along the way. And it always gave me like 
clarity of thought and purpose around what it was that I was trying to do. So I would say the best thing that anyone can do is understand and take ownership in the management of their own careers, have like constant check-ins with themselves about the things that they're trying to achieve. Um, and then, you know, not be afraid to step out there and do it because I fundamentally believe like there are no losses here. Like there is really not a ton of risk, right? Like it doesn't matter what happens. Like the real value is the process and the learning and the experiences that you have along the way. And so those are the things that I will always most appreciate about my career is just like the process that I went through, the people that impacted it. And just the things that we were able to do and overcome along the way. Awesome. And you're in the early days of this current chapter, right? Which, you know, maybe it's a long chapter, maybe it's a less long chapter, but, you know, as you say, you're sort of sucking the life out of it, you know, or the marrow out of it, I guess, to, you know, learn as much as you can along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great ride and I'm sure it will continue to be. And I'm looking forward to how it all evolves for sure. Great. All right. On that note, we will wrap up this episode of Career Sessions. Trevor, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. You know, it's great to hear, you know, about your journey and progress and certainly look forward to hearing about your continued progress with Stackwell and and what you're trying to achieve with it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to talking soon. All right. Great. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.